Hey, it is uh, seven minutes after 11. Dave Rowland is going to be with us in just a few minutes. If you just turned the radio on, we were talking about pit bulls. The question is, based on how lethal their uh, attacks can be, whether or not they should be banned. And apparently they they do more, uh, they attack more than, I guess, any other dog, uh, at at least according to dogbite.org. But I was curious about the origin of pit bulls, and I thought you might be too. Here we go. Pit bulls were originally a cross between the muscly old English bulldog and the quick and feisty black and tan terrier. Dog fighting breeders wanted the strength of a bulldog, which was bred for bear and bull baiting, with the agility of the terrier. The pit bull's deadly hold and shake bite style worked well in the context of dog fighting. The dogs will often sustain the attack until they themselves are killed, according to Colleen Lynn, founder of dogbite.org. Uh, let me wrap up this dog bite thing, and then, and then we've got to, uh, then we've got to move on, uh, because there is this uh, database that some, the, the state of Florida is going to use called E-Verify, and it is a mistake. Alan, welcome. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Hello, Alan. Yeah, hey, I got a question. But if, you know, you want to talk about the dog thing and and this and that, but hell, man, I've been down to Arkansas. They got the lion preserve down there. What What's the difference? Is it a dog or is it a cat? I Can mean, you own a lion in Arkansas? Can you have one? At your house? Can you have one in Missouri? I just asked a simple question. Can you, in Arkansas, have a a lion or a leopard living with you in your house? I'm in Missouri, and yes, you can. If you'll pay the conservation department, like 10 bucks, 15 bucks, 20 bucks, you've got to get the permit. I don't think you can own a leopard in, say, Columbia. Oh, I'm not so. I'm not. I'm not so sure. It used to be that way. All right. Uh, I, so the, here's the simple yes or no question, Alan. Should they ban pit bulls or not? No. All no, right. I, because I, it's not the dog's fault. All right. I, some people think that the dog is just a vicious dog, but I don't think they should ban it either. I think you're right. Thank you for the call. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Wrap it up with Kevin. Good morning, Kevin. Hey, how are you, Gary? I'm well, thank you. Hey, so I actually work in animal control, so maybe I have a little inside info. I'm also on my lunch break and using my personal phone, so not wasting taxpayers' time or money. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, we get a lot of pit bull calls, mostly because all bites that are taken care of at hospitals are reported by law to animal control. So therefore, pit bulls have a bigger bite. Most of the time, people have to go to the hospital and get treated for it. Also, they did try to pass a pit bull ban in uh, Columbia a few years back. It went to the city council, and it was unanimously overturned that it would not go to a vote. Okay. If I wanted to own a, a pit bull, or not a pit bull, if I wanted to own a, 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 a wild, leopard yeah, in, in the city of Columbia, <laughs> would I be allowed to do that? Uh, probably not. You have to have an exotic animal permit to do so, and good luck getting one. <laughs> not easy to get, huh? No, sir. All right. Uh, Kevin, thank you for the clarification. Enjoy your lunch. All right. Thank you, Gary. Thank you. 
Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. All right, so uh, apparently uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida is has has decided that if you if you're an employer, you need to use E-Verify. Uh, it's supposed to be an efficient, low-cost way for businesses to check the employment status of workers. Um, in 2016, the Department of Homeland Security estimated that compliance with the program cost employers an estimated 13.48 million man-hours annually. It is, according to Reason Magazine, the sort of bureaucratic intrusion into private uh, decisions of employers and workers that conservatives would, in many other cases, oppose. As a practical matter, it doesn't even work properly. Due to some built-in weaknesses, the biggest of those, as the Cato Institute uh, has pointed out, is that the system checks documents, not workers. And documents can be forged, stolen, or otherwise faked. When it does work, the E-Verify system harms rather than helps the economy. 2020 study from the National Bureau of Economic Research found that the use of E-Verify produces significant declines in Hispanic worker employment, but no evidence that native-born workers benefit. Florida should not be threatening employers for failing to comply with this E-Verify thing. It is a bad idea. That sounds a little bit like Joe Biden, doesn't it? Look, here's how it should work. You shouldn't have an income tax. You shouldn't have a FICA tax. You should have a consumption tax. Anybody who comes into the country and goes to work pays it because they got to eat. They got to buy clothes. They got to live. And that's a that's the best way to uh, to treat this. E-Verify just, it, it literally, uh, it hurts people. Uh, they make mistakes. It costs employers. It's a terrible idea. I don't know why we have this hate for people coming into this country. And why do you have to be coming here because you're being oppressed in your country? Why? When did that happen that we... We only let you in under certain circumstances. Uh, you know, the people fleeing Ireland didn't come here because the Irish government or the British government and the Crown were somehow uh, uh, punishing them. They came here for, you know, economic freedom. We didn't have a potato famine. People were eating here. People were working here. They came here. Most people came here for that reason. And there are people who came to this country because their government was looking for them. They were criminals. But they came here, and most of them ended up working and producing and having families and becoming, you know, generations later, us. And suddenly we're saying, oh, no, you can't come across the border. You're from Mexico. You're from Guatemala. You're from Venezuela. You, you can't come here unless you're being oppressed. We'll only let so many people come in here for economic purposes. If this displays a complete lack of economic understanding. We should be welcoming people. And in fact, if you wanted to, uh, to alleviate the problem at the border where people are, you know, being dropped off over the big fence and uh, it, it, just say, look, come to the front door. All we all we need to know is that you're not a you know a terrorist. 
uh, and you're not uh, going to kill people based on your history. Otherwise, come on in, go to work. That's how it should work. All of the other pathologies that develop are the result of big government. We're handling the border wrong. And if you did what I said, just think how few people would be coming across uh, not through the front door. You would eliminate these people who are risking their lives coming across the river, uh, the Rio Grande, to get into Texas. And you'd know if they were doing that, there was a reason they were the bad guys. That's how we should be treating the border. Come to the front door. We're going to let you come in and go to work. What we're doing now is never going to work. It is never going to solve the problem of people sneaking into the country. And the result of so many people flooding around the front door is that you can't keep track of who's coming into the country. You don't know if they're terrorists. We're handling this wrong. People who come here to work are good for the economy. Neither the Democrats nor the Republicans seem to be able to wrap their head around it. All right, I'm up against the clock, but boy, when we come back, we have Dave Rowland. And Dave has some fascinating cases that we're going to share with you. Uh, and uh, one of them is uh, Biden versus Trump judges. Justice Department stands up to Texas. We'll get to that in a minute. The Gary Nolan Show, Zimmer Radio Network. That's my theme song, man. Oh, <laughs> all right. Uh, let's see. We got a whole bunch of stories that we got to cover here that you have brought to the table, including gun advocates suing over Illinois' assault weapons ban. I understand that the uh, state court has said you can't you can't enforce this. Where does it yeah, stand? they they've temporarily enjoined the enforcement of this new assault weapons ban, um, and t- to let you know, the litigation is moving in kind of two separate waves. You've got litigation moving in Illinois state courts, and then you've got it moving in federal courts. Um, the state court challenge is focused primarily on uh, more technical issues. They they're complaining about the way that this statute was adopted. Um, They're saying that it violated parts of the Illinois Constitution. Uh, And then the federal effort is focused more on the Second Amendment. Uh, But as of right now, the state courts, the ones that are focused on the more technical aspects, have said that the assault weapons ban cannot be enforced for the time being. Um, They actually just issued an opinion, I think yesterday, um, and it was a 2-1 opinion in the Illinois Court of Appeals. most certain to go in front of the Illinois Supreme Court, um, where who knows what's going to happen. I mean, um, Illinois courts are notoriously kind of left-leaning, and so it is possible that they will remove the injunction, um, but but who knows? I mean, it, it, the fact that the Illinois Court of Appeals um, ruled in favor of the injunction for now is, I think, a pretty good sign, so we'll see. But one way or another... I think it's pretty clear that this um, assault weapons ban was unconstitutional from the outset. Uh, And even if the state courts don't keep an injunction in place, I'm pretty sure federal courts are going to move in and uh, and prevent them from ever enforcing this to begin with. Could be wrong. Could be wrong. But, um, you know, I, I think that 
even the the Illinois governor who was really pushing for this, this is kind of one of his signature um, signature legislative efforts. He kind of acknowledged, well, yeah, the Supreme Court has created this new way of analyzing Second Amendment questions. And he maintains that the assault weapons ban is legitimate because there were no assault weapons um, in the late 17th or late 18th and early 19th centuries, which, of course, is is ridiculous. I mean, um, they had the weapons that they had. Yeah, and and citizens uh, were allowed to own them. They didn't have computers uh, printing uh, newspapers back then that they still have freedom of the press. Yeah, saying that a certain technology didn't exist at the time doesn't answer the constitutional question, right? Um, and and so I, I think that um, his defense of this statute is, number one, purely political, um, which, you know, I guess I understand that. But constitutionally, it's misguided. And I'm, I'm pretty confident that, um, that this assault ban is not going to stand up, especially once the federal courts get a hold of it. Blue states are poking around, sticking their finger anywhere they can, looking for a weak spot uh, to get around the Supreme Court decision on the Second Amendment. Uh, And I've yet to find a place where they have prevailed. Is is that... Uh, I think think there have been a couple of lower courts that have indulged the poking and prodding. Uh, We talked, oh, about two months ago about um, a court in Mississippi, a federal court in Mississippi, where the judge said, well, I don't feel equipped to make a decision about um, these historical claims about firearm regulation, so we're going to appoint a historian to advise the court on this. Essentially, he was asking for someone to help the government do its job. So what, what the Supreme Court said is, we have to assume that restrictions on the right to bear arms for self-defense are unconstitutional, and the government bears the burden of demonstrating that there is some historical analog to the regulation they want to impose. And unless you can demonstrate that historical analog, then it's unconstitutional. Uh, really straightforward ruling in this case. And um, so by inviting a historian to come into the case and offer their perspectives, effectively the judge was saying, I don't trust the government to carry its burden. Therefore, we're asking somebody else to come in and offer an additional analysis. Um, I haven't seen any outcome from that yet. I think that that case is still in process, um, if and when we ever get a decision down, I'll, I'll certainly let the listeners know. Um, but that is one way that courts are trying to avoid the, I think, exceptionally clear responsibility that's been laid down for them by the Supreme Court. And you are correct that um, it has not been successful in in many efforts. Um, I, I do think that uh, gun control advocates are having a very difficult time in the courts right now, as they should. Um, so, so we'll certainly be keeping an eye on it and bringing updates to the listeners as they, as they present themselves. All right, let's move on. Cause you've got a lot of stuff here. Uh, one part of conservative judicial strategy was to get very solidly conservative judges installed in certain district courts than to bring their most important constitutional cases to those courts. 
The Biden administration is demanding the opportunity to move cases to different districts. Well, that's a change of venue, is it not? It is a change of venue. Now, I, I got to tell you, Gary, I have some very mixed emotions about this. Um, so on the one hand, it sounds almost like a liberal conspiracy theory. Uh, this idea that the conservatives were trying really hard to get specific judges in these specific courts so that they could drive their litigation through those courts. Um, and let me let me flesh this out a little bit. With many federal district courts, there are a number of different judges who sit in those districts. And so when a case gets filed, there's kind of a lottery to determine which judge gets assigned to the case. Now, the judge that gets assigned can actually have a huge impact on the case, right? If you get a judge that has a little bit more of a leftward lean, um, then that's not so good for conservative causes. If you get a solidly conservative judge, it's very good for conservative causes. But in most circumstances, the litigants have no control over which judge is going to end their case. But if you've got a federal district, and there are a few of them, where there's only one federal judge sitting in that district, you guarantee yourself you're going to get that judge if you file a lawsuit in that district. Now, here's the thing, Gary. It is absolutely true that conservatives were gunning to get certain judges appointed in those districts precisely because they wanted to drive litigation through those districts. I know this because I talked to the people that were making the decisions. I also know this because one of my college classmates, Matt Kazmarek, became one of those judges. Uh, Matt now sits in the Northern District of Texas up in Amarillo. He's the only judge up there. And several of my colleagues at other public interest law firms have specifically said, we're going to file as many cases as we can in the Northern District of Texas because we know Judge Kazmarek is going to be on our side. Here's the thing, Gary, that's actually not great. Like, it's great as far as conservative strategy, legal strategy is concerned. It's not great as far as our judicial system is concerned. Um, we really don't want to encourage litigants to forum shop. In other words, look around trying to find a particular court that's going to be more favorable. We want to be able to trust that judges are going to apply the law properly wherever they sit and regardless of the case. But the reality of the matter is, is um, there are currently districts that are more favorable for conservatives and the Biden administration is trying to change the rules so that it would allow them to get out of those districts. I don't think they're going to be able to do that. I think the, the higher courts are going to say, we have to trust that federal judges are going to be fair and impartial in applying the law even if that maybe isn't always quite the case. So um, we'll keep an eye on this situation. But it is interesting that this is a very real issue that the liberals have identified. Yeah, uh, and it is very often not the case that they are, you know, straight up constitutionalists. Uh, British Columbia is following Portugal, and I think we should follow them. We'll talk about it next. This is the Gary Nolan Show. It is 1135. You never know when uh, you'll need Dave Rowland and MoFreedom.org. Uh, maybe the government uh, takes away your freedom of speech, or your government doesn't respond to a sunshine law request, or they take away some other freedom of yours. You'll want to go to court, but you can't afford it. But you can call Dave Rowland 
and his organization will take your case to court. Now, the other side of that coin is it ain't inexpensive. It takes some money. So if you have a chance and you're in a position, go to uh, his website and donate. Um, MoFreedom.org slash donate. Because you never know when he's going to come riding in on a white horse to save you. And he's with us now. And uh, we've got more. Oh, yeah. British Columbia is following Portugal's lead. This all has to do with the drug war, Dave. It does. Um, so, Gary, you and I have both frequently talked about how the, the drug war has just been a catastrophe on, on many different levels, especially when it comes to individual liberties and constitutional freedoms. Um, but there has been a very slow movement to... Uh, undo the drug war. Portugal started, I think, almost two decades ago uh, when they effectively decriminalized all drugs. Um, and instead of funneling money into a drug war, um, they focused on um, health issues and, and addressing addiction issues. And it's been very favorable results for their society. So British Columbia, this province in Western Canada, is uh, about to do the exact same thing. They're going to decriminalize all drugs, uh, even heroin and cocaine, uh, and they're going to instead focus on the health aspects and the addiction aspects and trying to discourage people from choosing to use these drugs, but not banning it. Um, and this effectively is designed to kill the black market. So one of the biggest problems that happens is when you make a product that people want to use illegal, it doesn't prevent people from getting access to the product. It means that the product gets moved on a black market. And that means that the people making purchases can't always guarantee the uniformity or the quality of what they're buying. Um, it means that the people who are buying and selling are taking enormous risks and that encourages the development of gangs and gang warfare and turf battles. It's part of the reason, reason that Mexico is the mess that it currently is um, because the black market incentivizes a lot of violence. Um, and by ending prohibition, effectively, you're removing the perverse incentives to create all of this violence. Um, and it also allows people to prepare the products in such a way that the purchasers can be more confident in the quality and reliability of what they're buying. So all of these concerns about opioid overdoses and, um, you know, fentanyl overdoses, a lot of that has to do with the people who are purchasing and using those products don't understand what's actually in them. It's not necessarily uniform. The thing that they buy today may not be the same thing that they bought yesterday. And that's how you, that it's a recipe for overdoses. Well, here's, um, so in yeah. order for this to work, uh, somebody has to be able to legally produce. Now they're saying you can carry up to two and a half grams of opioid uh, without uh, without fear, but if I'm if you want to buy two and a half grams, somebody's going to have to have five grams. Other than, otherwise, they've only got one customer. I mean that's that's part of the that's part of the difficulty with decriminalization as opposed to legalization, um, and it's kind of what we've been seeing in uh, the marijuana um, arena 
across the United States. You had some places initially that were decriminalizing, and then you've gradually seen a shift full legalization, which is what we now have in Missouri. By the way, uh, I believe recreational marijuana sales uh, are going to be going live on the 6th. Uh, so just in a few days here in Missouri, um, you would be able to go and, and purchase marijuana legally under state law. Yeah, but that's um, such, so, that is so... so so if the federal government wakes up and decriminalizes marijuana, if mm -hmm. you're in the state of Missouri and you have too many ounces of marijuana, even though it's been legalized, you're violating the law. I, that is that is a challenge with what we adopted. Um, what we adopted was not ideal. Uh, I do think it was a step in the right direction. And I would hope that if Congress comes to its senses and, um, you know, delists marijuana and so that it would be legal nationwide, I would hope that we would make further adjustments to our state constitution to make clear that, um, you know, this is not illegal at all. Um, but as of right now, you're right. It's written into the constitution that if you possess more than a certain amount, it is illegal. Um, so we, we don't have a perfect system. What we have is an improvement over the previous status quo. Well, I think in some respects, it's it's a good idea. I just wish they had gone the rest of the distance. Um, and the other thing that they always do is they, when they do legalize, for instance, the sale of marijuana, uh, they tax it so much that the underground is still cheaper. You know, speaking of, Gary, that actually raises an interesting point. I wanted to follow up on what you were saying about the work of the Freedom Center by talking about um, a potential case that I received yesterday. Uh, so Phelps County decided to take advantage of this new constitutional amendment that allows local governments to add a 3% sales tax on marijuana products, but they did it in a really underhanded way. So the Sunshine Law says that uh, government entities have to publish an agenda at least 24 hours in advance of a meeting um, so that the public is informed as to what they're gonna be discussing, what they might be adopting. Phelps County Commission did not have anything on their agenda about a 3% sales tax on marijuana, but they decided at the last minute that they were going to adopt an ordinance that puts this question on the ballot for Phelps County voters. We got a call yesterday from someone saying, hey, doesn't this violate the Sunshine Law to you know kind of toss this issue out there, this substantive policy issue out there without giving the public any notice, notice that they were going to be discussing it or dealing with it. It does. It does violate the Sunshine Law. And this is a situation where the Freedom Center would ordinarily be very interested in getting involved in this particular case. But we've got a problem. Our resources are limited. And right now we're kind of stretched to the limit of what we can do with our current set of resources. And so we are going to discuss the possibility of jumping in on this case and seeing if we can get this taken back off the ballot because they violated the Sunshine Law in um, putting it on in the first place. But this is one of the issues that we run into when we are dealing with our limited resources is we can't always take all the cases that we would like to, certainly not all the cases that deserve to have someone going out there and fighting for them. So donations that are made to the Freedom Center are part of what allows us to go out and fight these cases. Is that a tax uh, tax exempt? 
Yes, the Freedom Center is a tax-exempt organization, so donations are tax-deductible. When we get off the air, I'm going to throw some money your way uh, so that you guys can take up the case. Because there are court costs uh, that you just have to cover. Um, so uh, I'm going to go to uh, mofreedom.org slash donate and donate. Let's, uh, let's move on. Bakery owner in New Hampshire, he's got a problem? He does. Um, so this is one of those weird situations, Gary, where towns really like to control uh, what people put on their buildings. And it's not a problem that's unique to New Hampshire. I've seen it here in Missouri as well. Uh, but this town in New Hampshire decided they wanted no signs in excess of a certain size uh, associated with businesses. And this business owner has a very popular bakery. It's been named the best bakery in the state of New Hampshire on a couple of occasions. And some high schoolers wanted to do something nice for this bakery, and so they painted um, a picture with donuts and pastries and all that kind of stuff um, up on this board above the bakery. Now, if they had painted anything else, if they had painted just pictures of puppies and sunshine, um, that would have been perfectly legal. But because the donuts and pastry painting happens to be above a place that sells donuts and pastry, it's illegal. <laughs> and so, so the Institute for Justice came in and, and they told the town, they said, look, this ordinance is unconstitutional. You're not allowed to uh, distinguish what's legal or illegal based on the substance, the, the subject matter of the painting. Um, if, if he can paint one thing, he has to be allowed to paint another. And the city dug in its heels, and they just refused to back down. And so um, earlier this week, IJ filed the lawsuit against this town in New Hampshire. Um, by the way, if you have towns here in Missouri that are cracking down with sign ordinances, trying to restrict the messages or the images that people can put next to their businesses, uh, please let us know. This is the kind of a case that I would be very interested in taking because the Supreme Court has made clear that you can't just regulate the subject matter of signs. You can't dictate to people what they are allowed to put on signs outside their homes or businesses. And uh, I do know that there have been a couple of cities in Missouri that have tried to push the envelope on this, but we're, we're interested in maybe taking another one of these cases here in the state. All right, we're up against the clock. Dave Rowland with us, MoFreedom.org. Is he condoning fraud? Well, I don't know. We'll, we'll look into this. It has to do with health care, and that's next. It is uh, 1151, and Dave Rowland is with us, MoFreedom.org. I don't uh, condone fraud, he says. But, well, maybe he does. What is this? This has to do with the uh, nursing degree? Yeah, there was a big story this last week where apparently a handful of schools in Florida were handing out nursing degrees to people who had never actually completed the educational requirements to earn a nursing degree. And uh, these people were then getting jobs as nurses uh, in various places across the country. And... Like I said, Gary, I don't condone fraud, but I think an important question here is if this scheme had never come to light, would people have known the difference? 
Uh, one of the things we frequently talk about in occupational licensing is that occupational licensing imposes all of these costs and burdens on people who want to perform given professions, but frequently there is no actual evidence that the quality of service that they're providing is improved by virtue of undertaking all of these costs and, and uh, burdens. And so I think a really interesting question here is whether there's any evidence that the people who, to be clear, did defraud the system, you can't legitimately claim that you have completed educational requirements that you never completed. That's not right. But it does raise the question of, did anyone really tell the difference as far as the quality of service that they were providing in their jobs? And... Uh if people couldn't tell the difference between nurses that had gotten these educational requirements completed and those that hadn't, maybe it suggests that the educational requirements weren't really that important in the first place. I think well, that's a really interesting question and one that I'd like to see looked into. I think occupations should be certified, not licensed. And there's, sure. a, there's a difference here. If I represent uh, an organization for dentists or plumbers or electricians or whomever, then I can certify that you meet our standards. Uh, but if I'm a government entity with a license, I can crush you and take away choice. This reminds me, I was watching um, PBS, and they've got a car show that's been on for years. And there is a group... Uh, called ASE, Mechanics. You go to get your car fixed, and you see this blue cog with ASE written inside of it. And mm -hmm. that says that these mechanics have been certified. Not licensed, right. certified. So you can, you can say, you know, it may cost me a couple of bucks more because I know that training is incredibly thorough, or if I'm short on money, maybe I go down the street, there's a mechanic that everybody likes, he's not certified, I'll take that risk. You have choice when it's certified, you don't when it's licensed. Yeah, that, that's an incredibly important point. And it's funny because this is something that has been coming up a lot in the context of school choice conversations, um, because if you're going to work as a teacher at a government-run school, then you have to meet all the government-provided requirements before you're permitted in front of a classroom. But private schools have um, a lot more flexibility. And so a private school teacher may not be required to jump through all of those hoops. And a lot of people who are against the idea of school choice are arguing, oh, these are unqualified teachers. But if you look at the actual outcomes, um, a lot of these teachers that are teaching in private schools are doing at least good a job as those in the government-run schools and arguably even better. Um, and so, sure, people can say that they want their children educated at a school where the teachers all meet these certain requirements, but people really should have the choice 
for themselves. If they don't think that those requirements are necessarily useful in determining the quality of a teacher, then they shouldn't be forced to send their kids to a school that imposes those requirements. Let them choose to send their kids to a different school if they think that that's going to bring them as good or better of an outcome when it comes to their children's education. Yeah. Uh, government has the power to blackmail people. You do yeah. as we say, or we're taking away your living. Um, and I don't think, and I, seriously, I'm willing to say as far as the medical or legal profession, uh, in addition to electricians and plumbers and hairdressers, it should all be certified, not licensed. Uh, because I get to make choices then. And they're taking them away. Uh, Brian, what do we have left? I got about a minute left. Two minutes. Can you talk about um, the initia uh, uh, petition initiative, initiative petition in two minutes? Absolutely. So um, we've talked for some time about the Republicans' interest in reforming the initiative petition process in Missouri. As of right now, if you get a certain number of signatures from six of our eight congressional districts, you can get an issue on the ballot. And um, if a simple majority, 50% plus one of the voters approve your proposed constitutional amendment, it then becomes part of the Missouri Constitution. Because of this, Missouri's Constitution gets amended quite regularly. Um, and that is not necessarily ideal. Um, you know, constitutions should not necessarily be so easy to amend. And They've been tossing around a number of different ideas, some of which were really, really bad ideas, like making it much harder to get issues on the ballot in the first place. But it looks like the issue that or the, the bill that is actually moving forward is not as bad. Um, they're not proposing to make it harder to get on the ballot with this bill. What they're saying is, is in order to actually amend the Missouri Constitution, you need 60 percent support from the voters as opposed to a simple majority. Um, as long as they say that in order for this amendment to go into effect, it has to pass by 60% of the vote, I think it's not necessarily a bad idea at all. Yeah, I think it's challenging enough to get on, uh, to get on the ballot. And I think that wealthier organizations and unions, and play, they've got the money. They'll always yeah. get on. Uh, but I think raising the bar... Uh, at the voting uh, polling place is a better idea. Dave Rowland, MoFreedom.org. Dave, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Gary. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. You seize the day. Carpe diem. Gwen, baby. Honey, I'm coming home.